Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So today we are excited for this episode. My good friend Melody has been working with a local anti-displacement organization that advocates for access to low-income housing. And I was so excited to have her on to talk about the continued issues in displacement and how it affects women. Um, And of course, because of what's happening with COVID-19, pandemic, and the quarantine, there's a lot of conversation about housing rights, uh, rental rights, and all of that. And it's just really important that not only do we acknowledge what's happening today, but what's been happening and what continues to happen and how we should advocate for it. But I digress, because before we start, in sminty fashion, we want to lay out some definitions, statistics, and overall issues that are our basics for this topic. So, definitions to know. Yes, starting with gentrification, which a lot of you probably know, but we thought just have a good standard definition in here, um, as defined by Merriam-Webster, the process of repairing and rebuilding homes and businesses in a deteriorating area, such as an urban neighborhood, accompanied by an influx of middle-class or affluent people that often results in the displacement of earlier, usually poorer residents. Right. And so when we talk about it with a socioeconomic stance, we do often see that being a very racial conversation because the majority of the time, the more affluent And especially in the past, the more affluent community would be a white community that was pushing out typically people of color and specifically in the urban areas, black people. So making sure we acknowledge that and not dance around the issue. Um, And we often see the overall effects of gentrification due to what is known as the rent gap and the increase of rent or property values. Rent gap is defined as the disparity between the current rental income of a property and the potential achievable rental income, which typically is the reason for displacement of many of the long-term residents who are often placed in the low-middle-income working class. And before we get more specific as to the effects of housing displacement on women, we wanted to discuss some of the historical context. Right. So displacement has always been an issue for the U.S. We can go all the way back to the historical accounts of the government removal or a more glossed over term of, quote unquote, relocation of Native Americans in 1830 by President Andrew Jackson. And then again, we see it with the Dawes Act in 1887. And by the way, one survey dated in 2013-2015, Native Americans and Native Alaskan communities were still experiencing higher rates of housing problems than the rest of the U.S. population. And though it seems the U.S. may have made some progress in not so openly enacting such horrid policies such as the Dawes Act, there are still public policies that have been proposed or enacted with the misleading idea of, quote, creating new public spaces, combating urban blight, or bolstering economic development. But when we look at who is affected and most negatively impacted, without a doubt, it is the black community. For example, Central Park was developed by displacing the black community who was living there at the time. Also, another term to know is redlining, which is the systematic denial of various services by federal government agencies, local government, as well as the private sector to residents of specific most notably black neighborhoods or communities, either directly or through the selective raising of prices, which has been in practice historically to continue to oppress minority communities, specifically, again, impacting the black community. This, quote, often barred any neighborhood with more than 5% of black people or people of color from receiving subsidies from home ownership and wealth building. 
it not only affected the banking and insurance process, but also affected access to healthcare and supermarkets, which is something to note today. Right. And over on the other podcast I host, um, we actually did an episode a while back with a, we interviewed a food lawyer and we talked about things like um, food deserts and redlining and how big of a problem that is. So if you want to learn more about that, our interviewee Pepper was awesome. You can go check that out. Do it. Yes. So now we did want to talk about the feminization of poverty. This refers to the fact that women represent a disproportionate share of the world's poor. As writer Cheris Charleswell writes, further, the feminization of poverty is not only a consequence of lack of income, but is also the result of the deprivation of opportunities and gender biases present in both society and government. For women of color, the loss of opportunities are also a result of institutional-level racism and discriminatory practices. It is these biases that have helped to create the gender wage gap and all of the socioeconomic consequences of inequality. Right. So when we break down the many intersectional issues that can cause housing displacement and disruption, there's no denying the overall battles that continue for women to gain equal footing in issues like this and why it's important that we not only acknowledge the disparities, but also advocate to fight against them. Let's go ahead and get into the interview about the issues and some ways we can advocate. Today, I'm so excited because we get to have my friend Melody Bray. I have known her. Oh my gosh. How long have I known you? Um. Not long enough. Not long enough, but it's been a while. I'm going to say about like 15, 16 years. That's probably accurate. Yeah, Yeah. you're one of the first people. Back when we were young and naive and felt like the world was our oyster. Right. Um, (laughs) I don't think I ever felt that way, to be honest. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to (laughs) die. So yes, my friend Melody Bray has joined uh, us for an amazing conversation. I'm really excited because I think it's something I've been thinking on for a while and we're talking about how housing displacement and issues within uh, gentrification and what that looks like, especially when we're talking about women and those who identify as female and those intersectionally who are people of color and are, there's so many things that we can talk about, whether it's the redlining, whether it's the old school policies that displace Native Americans and Native Alaskans and why that is so important, why that has long lasting factors of today and our society today. But yes, Melody, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Thank you From for your having home me. studios. You got a home studios now, just like us. Yeah. <laughs> so fancy. So I was fancy. Like, yours looks more fancy than mine, which is in the dining room. You actually have a like a study, it looks like. or Well, yes, <laughs> an office. office in the uh, west wing of my residence, of course. <laughs> the west wing, nice. so I've been actually watching a lot of west wing lately, so it's just <laughs> off the top. I'm, I want some inspiration in our politics, so that's what I'm watching right now. That's, that's the inspiration, I like it. Um, but yes, you are a part of an organization called City Roots ATL, and can you kind of explain to our listeners what this is? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm one of the uh, co-campaign managers for City Roots ATL, um, and we are a grassroots advocacy group uh, that's based here in Atlanta, um, and we're specifically focused on dealing with low-income housing issues uh, and anti-displacement work for folks in our city, particular to Atlanta. You know, you have this place that is the birthplace of the civil rights movement and uh, has this history of seeking to be more inclusive, seeking to be a place of equality. Um, And in our thoughts is uh, that housing access is just an extension of the civil rights movement. Um, It's about 
an equality issue. It's a, it's about just leveling the playing field and kind of the way that housing is set up in America. Um, so our goal is just to activate, to motivate, to educate uh, the citizens of Atlanta to bring this to the forefront of the priority list for our leaders um, and the decision makers, developers, um, those people who are stakeholders and are able to actually affect change in the city. And we're we're pivoting a little bit right now in, in the time of Corona. You know, your your grassroots groups are normally the door knockers, you know, the people who are marching, the people who are uh, showing up at city council meetings and all of those kind of in-person, face-to-face uh, touch points. Um, so we're in the midst of pivoting and looking at what that looks like in the post-corona world. But we think that grassroots advocacy is going to live on whether uh, Corona is here or not. So we're innovating on that end. Right. Wish you're going to have, we're talking today, it's what, February 28th. Tomorrow you're having a panel, an online panel, which I'm excited about. I want to, I want to see what that's about. Yeah. February? Um, she did say ah. February. But it's, <laughs> no, that's great. That's such a good example of how time is meeting this. <laughs> God, everything's the worst. April 28th, 2020. Yes. Everything's the worst. But you're having a panel tomorrow, and I'm excited yes. about that. Yes. Yeah, we're having a panel tomorrow. We've got um, a couple city council members. Uh, we have a magistrate judge in, in Fulton County, which is our largest county here in Georgia, um, who handles evictions and all that type of type of work and filings. We've got some uh, education scholars here at our local universities who are going to be speaking to the issues, some developers, um, just kind of attacking it at all sides and wanting to just foster a conversation. You know, right. solutions only come from people talking to one another and listening. Which is awesome. Um, how did City Roots ATL begin? Um, you know, it's about as organic as it gets. I was approached by a gentleman named Justin Gibney, who has been involved in local Atlanta politics for a number of years. And he uh, is focused on another project of his right now but he really cared about the issue of affordable housing and low-income housing and just didn't have the bandwidth. Um, so he brought together various folks, myself, I'm another guy named Mike Davis, who I'm a residential realtor. Um, Mike is in the commercial real estate space. Mike brought on another guy named Cameron who has connection to uh, the King Center and works there um, and is able to kind of bring that perspective of civil rights and that legacy to the table. And then we've got a bunch of folks who are living in um, areas that are experiencing neighborhood change um, and just care about the issue. Other people who are in communications and want to lend that kind of skill set. Um, super organic, super, uh, to me, I'd just say like providential um, mm-hmm. because it's it's a gift of each of us being able to lend our resources in this way. Um, and none of us were really friends beforehand, but through the process, we're becoming friends now. Um, and it's it's been really great to see. That's awesome. And yeah, I was going to ask, what has been your role? Why is it important to you? So for me, so my past life, I was an attorney. Um, I practiced for 10 years. I've been in Atlanta for 15 years. And when I moved here, it was right after I uh, graduated college. I was working at a coffee shop, making minimum wage plus tips. And looking back on what my city looked like in 2004 versus what it looks like now, it is, it's just not the same city. And the idea that 
someone like me who not in a way of tooting my own horn, but I do think that me being in the city makes Atlanta a little better, a little richer. I bring just your practical skill sets to it. But then also, you know, I'm a black female um, who has an, uh, a higher degree, who wants to reach out to neighbors and sew in here. And the idea that if I had moved to Atlanta in 2020 instead of 2004, I probably wouldn't have stayed. I wouldn't be able to afford to stay on the salary of a barista pulling in tips without a roommate because I didn't know anybody here. Um, So when I transitioned from being an attorney to being in real estate, I kind of had to contend with the idea that I am part of an industry that profits off of neighborhood change. You know, the higher the house price, the higher my paycheck. It doesn't mean I can't be a real estate agent, but it does mean that I need to be thoughtful about how I can give back Mm -hmm. um, and how I transact business. And so it started to make me pay attention a little more. Right. Pay attention to what's going on around me um, and then seek out other organizations that are doing good work. And uh, there's one in our city uh, named Grove Park Renewal. Um, a guy named Justin Bleeker heads that up. And just in conversations with him, being able to learn more about low-income housing and about the practical things of what people who are in that situation are dealing with and going through really kind of pushed me toward wanting to spend more time trying to work in that space. So for City Roots itself, as a campaign manager, I, I'm kind of on the high-level kind of stuff vision casting, um, strategy, figuring out what we need to do. And then, of course, anyone who's in a a position of leadership knows that you also have to do the nitty gritty stuff like stuff envelopes and whatever, whatever, take out the trash. You know what I mean? Um, So from top to bottom, like whatever we need to do to to get things done is is what I'm going to do. Right. Yeah. And I did look at your site and they had some really, really insightful stats posted on your site, which we're talking about um, low income in the city of Atlanta. And again, this is all defined by Atlanta. And we're talking about Atlanta because it is a big hub of gentrification, a big sore spot, honestly, Mm -hmm. in our city, in our communities. And one of the examples when I was researching about displacement and housing, um, talking about redlining, talking about why gentrification became a thing, they gave the example of Manhattan, in which the Central Park happened and displaced so many people. But then they also made the example of our park, Centennial Olympic Park, which caused a big hub and a big displacement of community that had been settled and happy. But because we got a bid from the Olympics, they moved to make whatever could be a profit. And I know it was a big sore spot and big conversation that still needs to be had and still not being addressed today. Yeah, absolutely. When you when you first said mentioned a park, I immediately went to the thought here in Atlanta, we have a West Side Reservoir Park that's coming Mm -hmm. online over on the west side of town. Um, and it is in any sort of write up, it's normally compared to Central Park in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be twice the size of Piedmont Park, which is also our largest park currently in the city. Uh, and there's a lot of development and infrastructure that's going on around that, but it's also placed in a historically black area of town. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you went to it 10 years ago, it's quote unquote considered undesirable. Right. Um, it's, you know, a food desert. The transportation is not connected to that area. 
Um, there are no amenities, no fun things to go to. And now that the park is coming, all of a sudden those things are coming, which means that housing prices are increasing exponentially at a rate that is just not tracking with wages. Mm -hmm. So for instance, here in Atlanta, um, wages have increased about 48% over the past 20 years, whereas housing rental prices have increased by about 70% Mm -hmm. in that same period of time. It's just not keeping track. And that's a very Atlanta-specific number, but the Bostons, the New Yorks, the San Francisco's, the Denver's, that are all dealing with at various stages of this same issue are also dealing with the fact that wages and housing prices, they're not parallel. They're definitely one is tracking a lot faster than the other. Right. Yeah. One of the numbers, which it hit me because when I started working, I made about 29,000 a year and was talking about how low income in the city of Atlanta, again, we're talking uh, near us, residentially for us, is defined by a household that makes at or below 50% of their median income, which is 28000 for an individual, 40000 for a family of four. And I cannot imagine what 40000 would look like for a family of four. Like That right. just makes me have <laughs> palpitations. Right. Just right. because of the panic mode as a single person, when I was making twenty nine, I had to have a roommate. I had to have a, like eventually have two to three jobs to make yep. sure that I could do this. And, and then best, seeing that, wow. Best practices as well. Um, federal government defines what's called being house burdened mm-hmm. as uh, someone who has to spend more than thirty percent of their income on housing utilities. And so, mm-hmm. you're making thirty thousand. And you're only supposed to be spending 30% of that on housing utilities. Uh, that's just not sustainable right. in most major metro cities. There's right. got to be either assistance, direct assistance to folks to supplement that 30%, or there has to be uh, an increase in housing um, and a suppression of housing prices. Right. So why do you think it's important for cities like Atlanta to be aware and advocate for housing rights? Obviously, we're talking about the issues, but why do you think it's important that we continue to talk about this issue and be louder about it? And as for you, who kind of makes a profit, as you said, why is it important that we talk about it? And how do you advocate beyond just let's talk about it? (laughs) Right, right. Well, I, I think first and foremost, beyond we can talk, you know, policy and uh, the quality of life in cities and all those types of things. But to me, it's more so the fundamental issue of people, humans, should be given an opportunity to have safe and stable housing. If you go, I mean, in your psychology 101 class and talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the ability to be able to function in any way that's going to really contribute to the world around you, you have to have your base needs met. You need food, you need shelter, Um, and they should be safe, safe shelter. And so just as a baseline, if we want to sit around and talk about the fact that we're good people, you know, if we want to sit around and talk about the fact that we care about um, someone other than ourselves, then housing has to enter into that conversation. Because right. it's a base need of those around us. Right. I think on a larger scope, um, and particularly, you know, in the context of this podcast and um, women's issues, you know, there are there are a lot of things as it relates specifically to women in housing that if you want to show some care to women, you have to address housing as well. Um, one of the things that 
in my opinion, doesn't get a ton of, of press is the connection between domestic violence issues and housing and access mm-hmm. to housing. You know, a woman who is in a situation that she needs to get out of is going to consider the feasibility of being able to leave. Mm-hmm. And if she doesn't have access to affordable housing to leave that place, maybe she won't leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean for her? What does that mean for her kids? I think it's something like 60% of families that are unhoused are single mothers. Yeah. And about half of those are black and brown mm-hmm. uh, women. And so for me, if I'm going to say I care about women, if I'm going to say about I care about black women, I care about brown women, then I also have to care about their access to housing, their ability to leave situations uh, that they need to be able to get out of. Um, so it it just touches so many different areas. It's not right. just about housing. It's about um, education. It's about the wealth gap. Um, it's about generational wealth mm-hmm. um, and being able to to build families that are uh, sustainable and growing over time. Right. You know, housing is the baseline, and that's just it, it has tentacles that goes everywhere. Right. Well, like. That comes to the next question, I and mean, you kind of already answered it. As we, you know, as we do look at the differences of gender concerning issues like housing and displacement, what do you see impacting women the most in this housing issues and gentrification issue? Yeah. Um, well, one for sure, uh, domestic violence issues. Right. Making sure that housing is affordable because when you leave, we know how that economically impacts women. Right. Sometimes you're leaving a job because you need to flee, you need to hide, and you you can't go to the same places that you would go before. Um, You had previously a two-income household, now you have a one-income household, um, so you can't afford as much. You don't have another person to chip in on childcare, and so you might have an increased cost there. All of these things play into what I can afford and whether it's it's okay for me to leave um, as as a biggie. I think a second one as well is that wealth gap, um, which... You know, the the idea that whether we like it or not, in the United States, what we've done is we've set up a system where one of the main ways that the average person builds wealth is their home. Just regular old Joe Schmo builds builds wealth through their home. And if you look at just median wealth and uh, wealth defined as everything you have, plus every money, all the cash you saved, minus any sort of debts, right? So if you look at median wealth, for a white male, median wealth is about $29,000. For a black woman, it's $200. Wow. Like, it's, it, there's, it's, it's nowhere near. Latinx women, even worse, it's $100. Wow. Um, and white women are around fifteen five, fifteen thousand five hundred. So there's even a gap uh, for white women as well. And... In my opinion, I'm, and I'll say this, I, I did not go to school for this. This is me like just being in it and, and reading about it and kind of consuming this information to inform how we run our organization. Because of the way that we've set things up as a society, that the house is the way that you build wealth, that gap is not going to decrease in a significant way until we increase access to housing to women overall, mm-hmm. and in particular, just looking at those number, Black and Latinx women who 200 versus 29,000, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's something that it's not just about a job right. difference. It's not just about getting less on the dollar. Right. There's something else going on there. Right. Um, so 
a lack of wealth accumulation would be uh, would be a huge uh, huge one. And the last one I'd say is just public housing overall. Um, the perception of public housing, uh, you know, we can get into that at some point in time, but. About 75% of public housing recipients are female, female-led households. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we decide we want to focus on capital market solutions, like we, we want to remove any sort of governmental assistance, we want to just incentivize developers to provide more housing units online. The, one of the issues with that is that if you're going to keep reducing the amount of public uh, housing options, that automatically affects women because the majority of the people who are in public housing ahead of household are women. And then the second is vouchers, which Mm -hmm. you don't have to live in a a government unit. You can use a voucher in a private unit, but about 85% of voucher recipients are females. Uh, So if you're going to reduce any sort of federal or uh, state assistance for housing, that means you're cutting off money to women. Right. Which sounds like kind of how we've been talking in the past uh, about the ERA and the Equal Rights Amendment, why things like that are so important because you don't see the overall effects where it can trickle down to things that you don't even know existed. We talked about that with the um, the Violence Against Women's Act as well, how that was kind of just kind of dismissed and some of the language was changed. And just that was significant enough to push back on women who are being financially abused as well and manipulated as well and why they can't get out of those situations again, which is another trickle effect. But that's that's an amazing content to think about when you think of government assistance, of who is it impacting and how. And it's not just food stamps, quote unquote, which is bad enough. But housing, which is a stability, which, by the way, wrecks the economy, wrecks the state economy, especially when you think about when it comes to child care, when it comes to child abuse, child neglect, child emotional abuse, all of those things are a part of that as well. Yeah, 100%. And also the tying into education, because Mm -hmm. you know that children who are going to succeed in school need to have stable households um, in order to be able to succeed there. So it really does just... uh, it serves as one of the base foundational factors for so many other things that when people talk about different policies that they want to see there be change in, mm-hmm. housing touches those things. And there's a lot of people who are doing really great research in those areas to kind of inform how we should be moving forward uh, on a lot of these fronts. Right. We have some more of our interview with Melody, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into it. With the already two common issues that we've talked about, which include the domestic violence, overall unemployment, um, issues with gender wage gap, which is a whole other conversation. Uh, What do you see are the biggest concerns and issues with things like this pandemic that we're experiencing and overall this large scale crisis? Yeah. So Corona is really wreaking havoc on Black and brown communities you know, obviously the physical aspect of it and how it's disproportionately affecting those groups. Uh, But in addition, you're just talking about there 
we're talking about groups that don't have safety nets here. Um, You know, they don't have a a pile of savings to be able to access uh, when there's any sort of interruption in their income. That's, that's massive. Mm -hmm. Um, Also food access, you know, the ability to use some of that savings and be able to go get food. It's obvious that that's happening. Uh, I've had to, I, I work with another group in town that, does uh, food stability, and we have expanded. I believe at this point we've expanded by fifty percent in our services because people can't afford um, can't afford it. But the major thing, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, um, but that's not the worst part. <laughs> I'm the Debbie Downer. Come on, <laughs> right? Um, it's evictions. Mm-hmm. You know, here in Atlanta, and there's been a number of other places as well that have put in a moratorium on evictions. Uh, But in reality, folks are still either one, the tenant in the unit isn't aware that they cannot be evicted during this time. Mm -hmm. Um, So with that lack of education, they can be taken advantage of by a landlord that says, if you don't pay up, you got to be out tomorrow. And that's even outside of Corona. That was the case. There are you know, tenant rights that they're not aware of. And then also just access to a defense, um, not knowing where to turn when you get the letter on your door that says, because you didn't pay rent this month, you know, you've got seven days to get out or, or, or whatever the time period is. So, uh, for my, my friends who work in the eviction space, they have noticed a substantial uptick in the filing for evictions. And, you know, there's some level of uh, cynicism uh, in my mind, but this is a really great opportunity for some landlords to clean house um, for folks that they've been wanting to get rid of for a while and haven't really been able to work the system to be able to get them out. Um, And now we've got an opportunity where, you know, you missed that one, you've been there for 12 years, you missed that one, that one rent check because, your place is not open, you're an hourly worker, and you don't have access to um, any sort of income. And so you got to go. Right. And then when you start looking at, especially right now, because again, we are in the state of Georgia and our (laughs) businesses have quote unquote soft open, um, Mm -hmm. whether or not you like it. And we see a lot of people, the big conversation of the fact that opening up means that this crisis state of unemployment, receiving unemployment assistance uh, may actually be pushed off and said, oh, well, you have the opportunity to work if you refuse to do so because you feel like you're you're at risk or because you have children at home that can't go anywhere. You're fired. You don't get unemployment. All those things. I just hated that. Okay, wait a minute. When I said you're fired, I sounded like Trump and I did not like that. (laughs) (laughs) Inadvertent Trumpism gets gets the best of us. That made me feel dirty. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Anyway, you know, letting people go and saying, sorry, you missed the day. You get, you had the opportunity to work for that $7.50 an hour. Now you can't. Oh, sorry. Too bad. Um, Which causes, again, that triple effect of I can't afford things. I have children. Where do I go? There's a disease that's just outright decimating people in specific populations, as in fact, specific communities. And it just is an overall tragic moment. And then you Mm -hmm. see, again, the evictions. You would think that there would be some people. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand there's not been any assistance (laughs) for people who are renting or renters, rather, owners of properties. There's no assistance. There's no help. So this is kind of like that 
backlash, even though everything's on pause, it doesn't mean it's not accumulating. They may not have interest, but it doesn't mean you don't owe three months of rent within the first month of us coming back whenever that may be. Right. So right. when you start looking at a single parent uh, trying to make all these ends meet and their daycare was school for that time and being and or their daycare was their parents who are elderly and may have uh, compromised immune systems and you can't have your children there because you don't want to risk their lives either. This is such a harsh reality of yeah. understanding this big picture and the loss of, of self, essentially. It seems. Yeah. And even the, the, what you had mentioned about having elderly in the home, you know, folks at lower income brackets are more likely to have multiple generations in the same house. Right. Um, so when you talk about like we've had we've lived in this house for 50 years, grandma's here, grand, you know, her kids, her daughter's there, her daughter's kids are there and daughter has to go to work now. Mm-hmm. Um, she might have that built in child care because grandmama is there to be able to take care of the kids. But she goes out into a space and is exposed to uh, who knows what and comes back into that space to now hang back out with grandma in her right. home. Um, you know, it's we, we don't know how it's going to play out, um, but we can certainly work through those scenarios in our mind of of what could go wrong right. in these situations. Right. And as I said, I'm a Debbie Downer. So, yes, <laughs> that's what goes through my mind. <laughs> well, with all of that sadness and negativity, um, what can we do to help to advocate as well? Obviously, I'm on the outskirts. No, I don't know too much anymore. I'm, I've kind of stepped out of social work and just watching this happen. What can we do? Are there policies and things that we need to pay attention to that may come into play during this mm-hmm. unprecedented time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say the first is just getting involved. Um, I know that, you know, the presidential election is the sexy election. I mean, as sexy as two old white dudes can be, <laughs> um, you know, people pay attention to presidential, they pay attention to Senate and House. But who's actually affecting our day to day lives? Um, you know, it's the equivalent of if you worked for coca-cola and you only cared about the ceo but you didn't pay attention to who your boss is in your department or the lady who cuts checks in in the hr or who runs that department um you know that's the equivalent of who is going to be mayor who's on your city council who's on your school board um and that affects taxes for your properties um so paying attention on the local level i think is number one um I'd also say starting to wrap our minds around and becoming comfortable with the idea that if you want to, if you say you care about others and you care about us as a collective, then that means we're all going to have to give a little bit. And that might mean that your taxes go up, you know, there, there could be something on your, uh, on your next election ticket next year that is going to affordable housing or to low-income housing, to raise money for that, and to be open to having to pay a little more out of pocket for all of us to be better, to to have the tide lift all of our boats, and to think about the idea that none of us, like I'm a homeowner, um, I'm a homeowner because people before me sacrificed in order to place me in a position to be able to afford to purchase a home. I didn't do this on my own. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so moving away from the idea that it's this eat what you kill, you get what you deserve type of mindset, mm-hmm. knowing that we all needed help. And some of us have help that's built in to our structures or family systems. And some people don't. And so when they don't, whether you want to acknowledge that or not, it will affect you at mm-hmm. some point. So maybe if we help on the front end so that the effect is going to be positive. So one I'd say is get involved, pay attention and be willing to give a little. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I'd say just educate yourself on the issue as best you can. Um, you know, I could guarantee that if you Google like your city's name and low income housing or affordable housing, there's going to be a number of things that pop up. It is a particularly um, kind of in vogue issue right now. Um, There's a lot of people doing research. There's a lot of articles being promulgated on it. So when you get to that ballot box on that referendum or that issue, you're coming with a a bit of a thought process behind it, not just a thumbs up, thumbs down Mm -hmm. um, from a gut reaction. And then lastly, which this is me coming particularly from a real estate perspective, you know, I hear a lot of my clients kind of have um, a guilt about purchasing a home in a place that's experiencing neighborhood change. You know, they are, whether it's just graduating or just got married, like that's kind of my group of folks who I work with, you know, there's a lot of first time home buyers. They're also being affected by, high, you know, high prices. Of course, they can afford more than someone who's in a low income bracket, but they're looking for a deal. And so they're going to these same areas that are changing and wondering how do I, as a person um, who has my own personal goals, meet those goals without kind of just rolling over everyone else in the process. Mm -hmm. Um, And so being thoughtful about how you interact with that process, ask questions, you know, if it's investor owned, who is this investor? You know, how much did they purchase the property for? Um, Was the property tax delinquent for three years beforehand and then they bought it at a value that's only 10 to 15 percent of what it was, uh, what it what it should be purchased for? Maybe I choose another house um, Mm -hmm. to purchase, you know, just being as thoughtful as you as you can and ask your real estate agent, you know, is there anything I should know about this home? Does it seem fishy to you? Um, those types of things. It doesn't mean you can't live your life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't have nice things, you know? Mm-hmm. Just being a little more thoughtful. And then when you're in it, be a good neighbor. Get involved in that neighborhood. Meet the people outside of your doors. Don't cloister inside of your house waiting for the neighborhood to change around you. Get out and advocate for the neighborhood that you now live in, along with the folks that are already there and had been there for the past 50 years advocate for them because whether i mean this might be a controversial statement to say but if a neighborhood is predominantly black and they are uh not getting the services that they need and nobody is listening to them and now the neighborhood is 30 to 40 percent white it's going to be easier to get those services right if people who are moving into that neighborhood with a little more access to power, a little more access to wealth, you know, in a different bracket, if they're complaining about something, 
they are able now to advocate in a way that those who were already in that neighborhood haven't been heard. And so be a good neighbor. You know, don't wait for the change. Help the folks that are there right now to your left and to your right. So ethically purchasing and being compassionate neighbors, empathetic neighbors. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. I haven't even actually thought about it like the way. We do have some more of this interview for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Well, this has been so informative and um, we really appreciate you being on here. Is there anything else that we haven't asked about that you think is really important that we do discuss? Hmm. I think the one thing that I, that I hope for in the low-income housing space is a higher level of collaboration between the players. I feel like each group is kind of working in their own silo. It's politicians and policymakers kind of, you know, running around trying to do policy over here. And then you've got academics just pushing out research over here. You've got developers. And not all developers are bad. There are those who actually want to develop in an ethical way. But they're kind of just doing it on their own over there. There's nonprofits and charities and churches who also have a heart for it, but don't even know where to start, you know, the opportunity to have all of those people come together and not just push uh, policies and initiatives, but actually start putting projects together that put more units on the ground or provide more funding. Just collaboration. You know, it's a huge, broad problem we're going to have to come up with a bold solution. And that solution is going to have to be something that is more than just legislation. And, you know, we're going to have some more money. That's, that's, that's kind of boring baseline solutions. We, we need something bigger than that. Right. I guess kind of going off of that, do you have anything in the future, either personally or for Boots ATL um, that you're excited about or um, hopeful for? Yeah, um, I think Corona has really changed up the entire dynamic. I mean, obviously, needing more money for practical, you know, solution to increasing more units is on the list of desires. But how this is all affecting every governmental entity's coffers is you almost can't hold it against them when you come to them and say, hey, we want X amount of dollars. And they're like, yeah, me too. I, we don't have it. <laughs> you know, it's gone. It's gone. It's, in, in the, it's gone into the universe. And so um, one of the things I'm, I'm kind of excited about is City Roots Atlanta is wanting to really push the city to utilize their land, their existing land. And, and it's not just Atlanta. Every city owns land. And I'm an attorney. And so I could get real granular about like, you know, the state owns all land, really, and they're giving it to us out of the kindness of their hearts, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the city has a ton of land. Some of it is in quote, unquote, undesirable areas, but they still can get money for those for those parcels. 
There are other that are in highly desirable areas and perhaps uh, you could get a ton of money for it or you could put it toward a good use and that good use being more units on the ground. You know, that's one of the things that we're pushing for. Um, and that's one of the things that, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not something we came up with, mm-hmm. but there's definitely an interest in how do we take something that we already have? It's not like you're having to raise money to get this land, you know, you already have it. How do we use this in a way that's going to best benefit our city? And particularly at the top of uh, the podcast, we talked about in Atlanta, that Westside Reservoir Park, there's a ton of land in and around that park that the city owns. Mm-hmm. And so it would delight me if you could go to this flagship project that the city has that is a draw for people around the region. And one of the things that are integral to the part of that flagship is low-income housing. And what that says to folks about how we as a city value everybody, not just those who are the haves who have been able to afford a beautiful house that overlooks the park, Mm -hmm. but we as a city also value those who are vulnerable and want them to have a view of the park too. Right. And just a, a asterisk here, the reservoir is the where they filmed both Walking Dead yep. and Stranger Things. True. True. Yeah, just, just to put that in people's mind of like what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It actually first was season, this desolate, yeah, first like, season in Walking Dead, uh, where they were out like camping around a huge like body of water. Right, they're washing was, their laundry out there. Yeah, I remember yeah. that scene. <laughs> that was our reservoir. That was our reservoir park. Right, and then the Stranger Things where he jumps off. Yeah, and uh, Eleven rescues him. But yeah, so this was actually a closed off part for a very, very, very long time, and then there's attention brought to it because of the filming industry filming there. But yeah, yeah. just in case people needed a, you know, a visual. Yeah, <laughs> a visual. That's what it is. <laughs> Small bag, right? <laughs> Which is now guarded, and you can't go in. People yeah, used to be exactly. able to sneak in, <laughs> and now they will arrest you. <laughs> yeah, don't don't sneak in. Uh, if you're not land, I don't do that. <laughs> I love this. So, with all of that, Melody, where can we find a City Roots ATL? What's the website? Do you have social media as well as? Where can we find you about wanting to stalk you? Can we? <laughs> yeah. So um, our website is cityrootsatl.com. Um, we've got some of our just general vision as well as uh, our, our some stats that are interesting on there. And then anything that we have coming up, we kind of update the website on that as well. And we're going to be rolling out pretty soon a series of webinars um, on a monthly basis on more discrete topics. Uh, in order to just kind of get that education piece going so that people feel a little more comfortable engaging in this space. Um, Tomorrow night, we've got that uh, webinar going that's more of a broad view of housing um, and then wanting to kind of drill down a little bit more as we go from month to month. Um, So cityrootsatl.com, and then you can find us on Instagram at at cityrootsatl, um, and same thing on Facebook, um, cityrootsatl. That brings us to the end of our interview. Uh, Melody was so amazing. I love her. She's one of the best. Uh, I've leaned on her a many a times uh, yeah. because she, as she's talked, she was she's been in law for a while now, and she just has a really good 
analyzation of what is happening, what is needed, and what's important, especially in our community. So I really appreciate what she does. So thank you, Melody. Yes, yes. Um, I definitely hope that one day I could meet her in person. <laughs> oh, yeah, you guys have kind of crossed paths. There's moments that she was supposed to be there and you were, you didn't come, and there were moments that you were supposed to be there and you weren't able to come and she was there. Yeah, now that I think yeah. about it. <laughs> one, day, one day, one <laughs> day. Um, and she definitely inspired me um, to get to know my community better and my neighbors better because I really only know, like, four houses, the one across from me and the two next to me. And that's it. That's mm-hmm. it. <laughs> Sometimes it gets hard, especially um, when you're so insulated in your world. Yeah, yeah. And I mostly just use next door to laugh at the odd requests that pop up. <laughs> There's some really good, interesting uh, drama happening on next door. Oh, right now? Definitely. Like, <laughs> always, but definitely right now. <laughs> um, so... I would recommend that all of our listeners maybe make that a goal as well and uh, check in on your neighbors if you can because we all need a check-in with our mental health right now and just be aware of what's going on in your community Um, is a great general piece of advice. Right. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you listeners if you have any organizations you would like us to shout out that are working on these similar issues uh, you can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com you can find us on Instagram at Steph I'm Never Told You or on Twitter at momstuffpodcast thanks as always to our super producer Andrew Howard thank you and thanks to you for listening Steph I'm Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio for more podcasts from iHeartRadio check out the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows <laughs> 